Franklin Leonard's Blacklist started as a survey of scripts via email. Today, scripts featured on the list have generated over $25 billion in worldwide movie box office. Plus, what will you be watching on TV in 2016? This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to interview Franklin Leonard, the former executive at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company who started The Blacklist, a compilation of unproduced scripts that has become a huge annual event and where Hollywood goes to find hidden gems, the most popular but unproduced scripts. Movies produced from scripts featured on the blacklist have gone on to be nominated to 261 Academy Awards and won 45. Three of the last seven Best Picture winners were blacklist scripts, including The King's Speech, Juno, Argo, and not to mention this year's Spotlight and DiCaprio's The Revenant. But first... The Television Critics Association panel, or The Winter Tour, has just wrapped up. The TCAs are a huge event where TV critics get all the information on upcoming shows. They do interviews, attend panels with creators, showrunners, and the casts. It's at the TCAs where the season's TV is introduced. I'm super happy to check in with one of our favorite TV critics, Slate's June Thomas, who has just got back to New York from Los Angeles. And she gives us some of her own impressions of the TCAs and this season's coming TV lineup. June, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Christina. I feel like I've been in a tour of the world and of the ages, and I was only there for, I think, five days. Describe the overall experience of the winter tour, as as it's called. Right. So there's a winter tour and a summer tour. And it used to be that the winter tour was very much the smaller one because, you know, it was mostly broadcast television in the old days. And so, you know, most of that in the U.S. comes out in September and so the winter tour was just a few, a few mid-season fill-ins. Well, now they're not exactly equal. Uh, winter tour is about two and a half weeks, whereas a summer tour is about three and a half weeks. And basically, as a critic, you go there. You Most people who don't live in Los Angeles stay in the hotels where they are located. And at eight o'clock in the morning, you go to the ballroom. Uh, there's breakfast outside. You go and you take your place uh, at the on tables. You know, it's a big room with a lot of tables. You know, with you know the usual plugins and so on these days, so you can plug in your laptop. And basically, you stay there till about six at night. And wow, life are, is hard at the ballrooms watching television. It's like the Cinderella story with television <laughs> involved. <laughs> I know it's really hard to complain, but oh my god, it's such hard work because. So you're sat there and you would think, okay, well, that's pretty passive. And, and for some people it is, you know, not everybody asks questions. But these days, again, it's changed a lot since, since, it, since it was first established. But these days, most people are either tweeting like maniacs, basically tweeting everything that people's interesting that people say, or they're sort of, you have to, you have to, but again, you know, so there are these panels there, some of whom are kind of amazing, you know, like the people that they've assembled are this just star-studded or really interesting combinations of people. Um, So for example, on Saturday uh, at 8 a.m., because it goes on over the weekends too, after what had been a late night the previous night, uh, 
eight o'clock in the morning, everybody's there in the ballroom, and on the panel were J.J. Abrams and James Franco and about five other really fantastic actors or uh, showrunners or writers. And it is just kind of fantastic. Is that for the Stephen King show? That's right. That was for their 11-22-63, which is about the James Franco goes back in time and tries to stop the assassination of JFK. I'm going to tell you something that's going to seem crazy. I need you to go in this closet, take a look around, then I'll tell you everything. That was 1960. I need you to go back there to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and there are other panels like that where it's just a kind of a star-studded situation. Mm-hmm. Um, like for the S- stars show Dresser, which of course was a BBC film in England. So it's a, it's a kind of a, I don't know, it's a film of the, of the famous play of that name mm-hmm. with Sir Ian McKellen and Sir Anthony Hopkins. They had three Knights of the Realm on the stage and then they had Sir Ian McKellen in London because he was filming something there. Mm-hmm. So... It's kind of, you know, amazing. Mm-hmm. But you do have to, you know, I was going to say, again, it sounds a little bit pathetic, but, you know, you have to think of questions worthy of them. You have to watch a lot of television, watch a lot of screeners in order to be prepared because there's nothing more pointless than being there if you don't know anything about what they're talking about. So to tell us what looks good. Let's start with the Stephen King. Yeah, it looks it looks interesting. I mean, it's got, it really does have a great cast. It has, you know, a, and this is one of the things about TCAs. So you get to hear from the creators and it really gives you an indication of the people who kind of know what they're doing or just really have figured out how to approach a particular project. Because um, the woman who was, who wrote the script uh, for, for uh, 11-22-63 um, a woman, <laughs> I'm madly trying to look it up now because I remember her first name is Bridget, but um, I don't actually remember her last name. Like She is just really clear and smart and she kind of knew, um, oh, her name is Bridget Carpenter and just really knew exactly like, you know, she talked a little bit about the process of adapting, you know, a big, huge book like that about something that's so you know, huge in, in American uh, history and life. And so, like, just hearing from her and, of course, J.J. Abrams, you got a sense of, oh, okay, yeah, they really know what they're doing. I trust this, these people. This will uh, be good. That's exactly it, yeah. So that seemed really uh, good. Um, I really liked a couple of things from BBC America. Uh, London Spy, which has already aired in Britain, um, that I thought was fantastic. It's Ben Whishaw uh, as... Uh, he's basically in every scene, uh, and it's really fantastic. And and I was very interested when you were twittering about Samantha Bee's new show, which I'm super looking forward to. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, that was tricky because it's not the kind of show that I typically like, um, or not like. I just don't really watch them. I don't dislike them. I just you know I I'm not crazy about that sort of, um, you know, even The Daily Show, which which obviously where she made her mark. This is like a, a variant of, of John Oliver or, or Daily Show type of thing. That's right. It's, it's And John Oliver is an especially good uh, comparison because it's also weekly. Um, 
And, but, so even though it's not quite my thing, it did seem really different, which is really, again, something that you want at TCA because... Well, the first woman, for one thing. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you could tell, you know, they didn't have much to show us, again, just because it's topical. So since they've not launched that yet, they didn't have a lot to show. But the thing that they did show was something that they'd been working on, uh, which was about the VA, the Veterans Association or the Veterans Administration, um, which is uh, the sort of healthcare for uh, for men and women who've served in the services uh, and they get their health care covered by them. And it's typically not terribly good for men, but it's particularly not good for women because they're really even now not set up for female vets. And so even though we just saw a little bit about that, uh, you know, just a small clip, it was clearly a very hard hitting uh, piece, um, you know, just about things like they don't even have... Um, prosthetic limbs in the size uh, for women. So a woman who had lost her foot had, you know, a giant man's foot on the end of her leg. Um, so, you know, things like that that are really serious, but also, of course, she managed, you know, it's an amazing achievement. She managed to make that funny. Yeah. Who's the show? Who, who is she working with on that one? Um, oh, my goodness. I wish I could remember the name of the person because she was fantastic. So there was, that was a panel where sometimes there are, you know, thousands of them. But there were just two of them. It was just Samantha B. Um, and, oh, I know, Joe Miller. And Joe Miller was there and she was knitting. <laughs> on stage. <laughs> on stage. And it was just fantastic. I mean, obviously it was a bit, but it was so perfect because, you know, she was, you know, an older woman. She's the same age as me. She's not, you know, so I don't, I don't mean that with any tone. But, you know, it was, uh, uh, there are more women these days. Um, another really great panel. But could she knit? She could knit. She was she just was, faking it. <laughs> no, nah, she was knitting like a maniac. You thought I had my eye on that scarf um, because it's always a little bit cold in the ballroom. Um, but an, again, another uh, two women panel uh, was the CW, which actually was really impressive. They had really interesting panels, um, but they had a panel that was just the showrunners of uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which just won a Golden Globe the same day as the panel, actually, and Jane the Virgin. So two shows that in the U.S. appear on the same night, you know, it's the eight o'clock and the nine o'clock show, um, but also thematically linked. They're about young women who are kind of figuring their lives out, making some mistakes and so on. Uh, also a little, both of them with some, you know, magical realism at times. Um, and, and that was just a great panel, just to, to hear the things that they talked about was stuff that just didn't come up elsewhere, like you know, how you reflect, um, you know, being a new mother and how you show that in, in a realistic way in a television program. So some nice shows, women-centric shows. This yeah, yeah. And and um, I have a, you know, I do a focus on LGBTQ characters and there were also some great shows there. Um, a, a documentary series that Ellen Page, Ellen Page, the movie star, is doing with her best friend called Gaycation. Uh, where they go to different countries of the world and just kind of assess how it is for for queer people there. I saw one episode in Japan and it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. Really high quality. Um, uh, there's a show called Happen Leonard that's on Sundance uh, that's based on um, some novels uh, set in Texas that I'd never heard of before, but I started to read one of them. So it's a really fascinating, you know, two guys who've been friends since childhood uh, one is a, we know they're both sort of early middle age. One is a white guy who went to jail because he 
wouldn't uh, go to the Vietnam War. Uh, it, the show is set in the 80s. And then his, his best friend is a black gay man who uh, is a Vietnam veteran. And they get in, you know, they're kind of down on their luck. They're 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 poor guys, you know. It's 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 a realistic sort of you know show set out in in West Texas, uh, and just really really interesting. Um, and I was just it's just fascinating that these shows that come out of nowhere, um, I think, seem of a quality that would have been you know the best show of the year. Just a few years ago. Okay, what about vinyl? Martin Scorsese's rock and roll themed show. Yeah, that I still don't really have a good sense of it. I mean, it's very. I I, I certainly watch just because it's it's set in New York and it's got amazing actors. Uh, uh, I, I just remember Ray Romano, but the star of the show, his, his name is currently escaping me. And for that panel, they had you know these amazing actors on stage and then they also had um Mick Jagger just Mick Jagger no big thing yeah <laughs> and Marty Scorsese Marty as I call him right, Marty right. Scorsese <laughs> <laughs> and they they neither of them could actually be um in Los Angeles uh because just just to note that sometimes they have like 14 people oh, that was a, an admittedly crazy panel say even if it's just six or seven many times they've traveled quite a distance you know the people from the Americans, uh, they'll be coming from New York. You know, let more and more shows uh, film outside of L.A. And they fly in. And then sometimes they don't even get asked any questions, some of the panelists. You know, they, people will focus on the showrunners because it's an interest, you know, it's an unusual chance to get them. What would you say you saw that we all will be watching? What do you think is going to be the big thing coming Ooh. up? Well, one thing that I think will be popular, although, again, it's not really my thing, um, AMC has a show called The Preacher, mm -hmm. um, which, again, one of the things that you discover at uh, TCA is how many of the actors are who are in these American shows are not American. Um, so many of the networks seem to just, you know, have a pipeline from Britain and Australia uh, bringing people in, and right. you don't realize, you know, don't realize, because they do American accents on the show. But The Preacher is it's going to be on AMC. It's based on a... Um, a uh, comic book um so it has that kind of level of reality but young actors who people really responded to a little bit violent for my taste but i think it will appeal to that sort of walking dead uh maybe even breaking bad although it's pretty different from that so very dark and not so superhero type exactly mm -hmm. um yes very yeah 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 very much so sort of again another show that's set in texas um, that, but was written by a guy from Northern Ireland who was living in New York at the time, but I'm not sure if he'd ever <laughs> actually visited Texas. Okay. But it was kind of a vision of Texas, you know. Um, and then actually a show which might could be an utter flop, um, but it was really unusual, so it really kind of grabbed my attention, which is called Outsiders. And it's on WGN America, another tiny channel that, that well, not a tiny channel, but just has only very, very recently started to have original scripted shows. It used to be a, a channel that you'd go to watch baseball games and sports. But um, it is set, it's got really interesting writing. It's written by Peter Matei, Peter Tolan, who's a longtime showrunner, is, is, uh, is involved. Um, and it's about a bunch of people who live off the grid. And they have their own uh, sort of rules, their own hierarchy 
they don't have money they don't uh, really they just they don't really have any contact with the the real world you might say except when they some there's some things that they don't have that they need sometimes and so then they get in their their all-terrain vehicles and ride off their hill or mountain and into town and they just ride into you know Walmart and just take stuff Okay. Um, so sort of like almost maybe a leftovers vibe. I mean, some like a society that's not. Yeah, really... that, that's sort of vibe. Yeah, and and it's just it, again, it could be just weird and crazy and just die, or but there was something about it that I found kind of appealing. So that could be it. Might might be big. And any of the returning um, one or two of returning shows that people were like, or or the new shows from last season that people were like, yeah, these these are really we're looking forward to these coming back. I heard a lot of buzz for Fresh Off the Boat. Mm. Seems that the ABC comedies um, that mostly the ones that are in their second year now. So ABC had this. I mean, if you wanted to be a little cynical or just kind of find their weird common denominator, you could say that they were kind of diversity things for, for ABC. They've tended to uh, revolve around... Fresh off the boat is Asian-American. Asian-American, yeah. So blackish, about a black American family. Um, the Goldbergs, about a Jewish-American family. Um, and people seem to really be enjoying those shows. Uh, when I was talking to other critics, like, what are you watching, not screeners? People would often mention... Uh, Fresh off the boat, especially. And there's another one which did panel that's uh, starting, I don't think until March, uh, but it's called The Real O'Neills. Um, and it's in theory, well, no, I shouldn't say in theory. It's based on, well, the idea came from Dan Savage's childhood. Um, you know, Dan Savage, the sex educator, oh, yeah. ad mm-hmm. advice columnist, uh, podcaster. But it's it's pretty loosely based. Um, so it's it, the thing that they got from him is... Um, uh, three kids uh, and their Irish Catholic family, uh, Irish Catholic parents in Chicago, father a cop. Um, and then, you know, they have this sort of perfect life. Uh, they're very involved in the church and in sort of the, you know, what you might say, Catholic society, I guess. And then one day um, their, their youngest son realizes that he's gay and tells his parents. Uh, another son the other son tells them that he's he has anorexia, and uh, the 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 sister is revealed to be a thief. Um, and so it's it's you know not that those I mean some of those things are bad, some of them things are are problems, some of them are just differences. But um, I guess it's all about uh, kind of we're not we're not as perfect as we appeared to be. Um, and the kid who played Kenny, the young gay son is really charming and charismatic. And I think it's kind of one of those discovery moments. Um, hey, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And so it's like, I was kind of thinking, well, what is this now? Is gay the minority here? Is that, but <laughs> it's really more that no, it's an thieves, I apparently. <laughs> it's an Irish Catholic family, I right. guess. So yeah, yeah. Well, June, thank you so much. This is always fun. Um, maybe I can come back. Is it the spring tour or summer tour? You said it was called. Some summer tour will be in July. Yes. Well, maybe we can check back with you, if not before then, and see what you've been watching. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much, June Thomas of Slate. Franklin Leonard has a lot of big Hollywood titles to his name. He was one of the youngest executives at Universal Pictures, president of creative affairs at Will Smith's production company Overbrook Entertainment, 
and an executive at Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way. But it's a yearly publication, The Blacklist, featuring Hollywood's most popular unproduced screenplays that has become his biggest success, and a real Hollywood institution. And it all started when he was about to go on vacation, but we'll get back to that. So many Best Picture winners have been Blacklist scripts. Recent ones include Argo, The King's Speech, Slumdog Millionaire, Whiplash, The Imitation Game, Selma, and The End of the Tour. And previously unknown writers such as Diablo Cody have captured Hollywood's attention through the Blacklist. I'm so happy to speak to Mr. Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of the Blacklist and host of the amazing show Blacklist Table Reads. Thank you so much for being on the show, Mr. Leonard. Uh, thank you for having me. Could you start before we get into a little of the history um, and just tell me some of the numbers. How many scripts have been produced and what about nominated? Yeah, if you... Uh you know, we're actually going back through to, to double confirm those numbers right now since the Oscar nominations were just announced. Um, you know, approximately, though, if you look at the first 10 years of the blacklist every year but this past year, uh, which are films that could have theoretically been made by now, um, there have been about just under a thousand screenplays on the annual blacklist. Uh, just over 300 of those have been produced. Uh, I think at last count, they've made over $25 billion in worldwide box office. I think the number with this year's Academy Award nominees is 261 Oscar nominations, uh, 45 wins, including three of the last seven Best Pictures and eight of the last 16 screenwriting Oscars. Uh, this year's big awards uh, getters that were blacklist scripts include uh, Spotlight, which is nominated for a number of Oscars, as is The Revenant. Um, and End of the Tour, which you mentioned, is also nominated for several Independent Spirit Awards. Tell me, what is the blacklist? Ex explain to the listener. Yeah, so uh, 11 years ago, I was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. My job was to find great screenplays um, and great screenwriters that we could be in business with. Um, I felt like most of the reading that I was doing uh, was... Let's be generous and say we're less than great uh, screenplays. <laughs> um, and uh, so I took a survey of my, my peers, uh, other executives in the industry. And this was before you were off to vacation, I understand. This was right before I was off to vacation. I knew that I was going to be reading some scripts over the holidays. I wanted them to be good ones. And I was just trying to, to, to sort of reverse engineer my way into a list of those good scripts. So I surveyed my peers and said, essentially, send me a list of your 10 favorite unproduced screenplays that you most liked from this year. In exchange, I'll send you back the combined list, which is exactly what I did. Uh, slapped a quasi-subversive name on it, which was both <laughs> due to uh, you know the the writers and, and really everyone who was sort of silenced by the Hollywood blacklist. You mean the, the blacklist? That that's kind of a subversive, right? It, well, it, it was it was sort of double reference, right? On one hand, it was meant to be a tribute to writers like Dalton Trumbo and folks whose whose careers were really ended or or significantly interrupted by the McCarthy era. And then it was also a conscious inversion of the notion that black somehow needed to signify bad. Um, you know, growing up as a black kid in the deep south in the U.S., uh, you hear a lot of things and you look for ways to subtly invert um, certain racial assumptions. And this was sort of one way that I, I thought I might be able to. I think it's important, though, that I mention, you know, I, I didn't. It, it was more of an inside joke when I named it the first year. You know, I had no ex expectation that it would become what it has become right, in the years following. So, so it, it's an annual survey of the industry as a whole's most liked unproduced screenplays, and it's literally it comes out the Monday before everyone goes on vacation each year in December, and it really is meant to be a uh, 
you know, a, a roadmap to the things that you may have missed over the year or maybe should revisit if you're in the position where you can actually move a project forward in the industry. And these are both completely new, unheard um, screenwriters from outside of the industry, but also um, big names. I mean, you can get a, yes. lots of uh, lots of big names have been on there too. So after the first few years, people would come and look at that list that when it came out um, in December. And, and what were some of the things they were finding? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, after Lars and the Real Girl and Juno got nominated for Best Original Screenplay, uh, it, it was sort of a tipping point because they had been the number two and the number three script on the first list. All of a sudden, people said, wait a minute. Uh, you know, neither Juno nor Lars and the Real Girl on their face are, you know, box office gold, um, just based on their subject matter. But it turns out that if you have a really well-executed screenplay, you've got a better chance of uh, making a a movie that can go on to great success than you do if you don't have a great script. So I think people probably took second looks at things like The Imitation Game or Draft Day or um, or The Revenant, which was in the list in 2007. Um, so I, I think that we, you know, we do a very good job of shining a very bright spotlight on material that could theoretically go overlooked. Uh, there was a script that was acquired by a producer on the Sony lot uh, two or three years ago that hasn't yet been made. But the, the producer, who's a former head of Sony, said, you know, the blacklist, you know, finding this script because of the blacklist is a bit like finding an athlete who was passed over on the first few rounds of the draft. I realize this is specifically American reference. Right. And, and like someone like Sorkin's been on there too, so it's not just... Yeah. I, 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 that's actually one of the things that I find sort of most fascinating about the list, which is that, um, you know, the list ends up being, on a year-to-year -year basis, a collection of, you know, newcomers literally from outside of the industry and outside of Los Angeles uh, to folks like Sorkin and Tarantino and David Benioff, who are, you know, as close as screenwriters get to being household names. Um, and I think that shows, for me at least, that you know, uh, talent is not the exclusive provenance of those who are in the industry, and the industry should do a better job of looking outward to find new talent. I mean, this is why we built the Blacklist website that sort of functions as a two-sided marketplace that allows anyone on earth to upload their screenplays, have them evaluated, and if they're good, we tell the entire industry, hey, pay attention to this. And I'm actually really proud of the fact that the number one scripts on each of the last two years' annual blacklist were writers who were discovered by their representation via the website we created. Okay, who were they? Uh, Christina Lauren Anderson, who wrote a Catherine the Great biopic, which was the number one script on 2014. Uh, and a guy named Isaac Adamson, who lives in Chicago, Illinois, doesn't, doesn't even live in Los Angeles, uh, uploaded a comedy several years ago, was discovered by his manager and agent. Uh, they signed him. They asked him what he wanted to write next. He said he wanted to write a biopic of uh, Michael Jackson's Chimp uh, Bubbles. Exactly what he did. And that script sort of set the world on fire and was the number one script on the 2015 list. So we may see that coming in 2016. I would bet against seeing the Bubbles biopic okay. in 2015. <laughs> not because it's not great, but because there are significant rights issues to making that work. Right. I, do, I do very much hope to see... Um, the Catherine the Great biopic soon, though. This is where, if you're a, a writer in a small city in Sweden here, uh, and you don't have, you're not in the WGA, you don't have an agent, you would upload to this part of the blacklist. Um, that's where that's you would get. Exactly your right. So if you're any, if you're in a small town in Sweden, if you are anywhere in the world, and you have written an English language screenplay that you feel confident is the best work you can do, uh, you would go to the blacklist website. For a small fee of 25 US dollars a month, you can host your script on the site, 
for $50, you can have your script evaluated by one of a team of readers that we've hired, all of whom have worked for at least a year in a job in Hollywood wherein reading screenplays is a significant component of their job. They're further vetted by, by me and my team. We hire fewer than 15% of those who apply with that one year of experience. It, tr they, it truly is the best of who you'll be reading your script if you submit it to any uh, sort of major company in Hollywood. Um, and if it's good, we tell everyone in the industry, hey, there's this great script, you should pay attention to it. And um, we've gotten literally hundreds of writers uh, signed by agents and managers, help them sell their scripts. We have partnerships with the studios uh, to help them identify certain kinds of writers. We actually just launched a partnership with the Austin Television Festival and five different television studios to help them identify writers for consideration for staffing uh, during the next staffing season. We're trying to create a, uh, a more meritocratic system so that the industry can find people who are talented. It shouldn't matter where you live. It shouldn't matter uh, the, the resources at your disposal. If you can go into a room and write a brilliant screenplay, you should have the opportunity to make that your career. Going back to what you were talking about a little bit about diversity, one of the things just with the Oscar nominations, it's been um, um, an outcry of, of the lack of diversity over the nominees and women as well, as you were mentioning. Do you see the same diversity problems in terms of who's submitting screenplays and, and who's getting on the list, um, the annual list as well? I'd say the blacklist is a, um, sees some of the same biases that the Academy does, unfortunately. You know, we're serving, fortunately for us, we are serving a younger, more diverse um, group of voters that have their ear more to the ground, I would suggest, than the Academy does. Who are the voters who are voting for this annual blacklist? The annual blacklist voters are any executive at a major studio, finance, film financier, or production company who have a deal they're with. Okay. And so it's about 600 to 700 people every year that are voting, and they range from the you know, most recent, most recently newly promoted executive at a production company to studio presidents, um, and that that group is is more diverse than the academy, though less diverse than the United States population as a whole. Uh, certainly more diverse on gen on the gender front, um, and I think that you know, we are still the blacklist. I think is a mirror that hold that we can hold up to the industry to say that even within the industry proper, so not the academy, but the, the working industry on the executive side, um, we have a long way to go when it comes to uh, diversity of all sorts in the industry, racial diversity, gender diversity. Um, I am really proud of the fact that last year uh, the, we had the first woman who had the number one script on the list, um, and I think we had five of the top ten were, were women or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact numbers, but... Um, we, the blacklist, you know, the, the, as the name suggests, is, is very committed to uh, raising the visibility of the cause of diversity uh, in the film industry and, and taking practical steps to make sure there's more diversity. You yourself, you were a Harvard grad, you're a big executive on the other side, sort of not, not a writer. What have you learned during these years since you started the blacklist uh, that what makes a good script? Um, I, I think... I don't know that I've learned anything new about what makes a good script, but I will say that um, what has been confirmed by my experience over the last three years working full-time on The Blacklist is that um, the key to a great screenplay is not in uh, any specific set of rules or any specific uh, kind of story. It really is in the ability 
of a writer to elicit a, a strong emotional response from a reader. Um, you know, I've always said that I, I people always ask like, what's the best? Uh, you know, what do you look for when you read a script? And, and you know, I, I used to have these like very complicated answers about you know trying to hit certain uh, narrative uh, marks by certain pages. And now, you know, I've seen enough screenplays that, that violate any rule I could conceivably come up with that my answer is essentially um, keep me turning the pages to find out what happens next and make it make me sad when it's over. Okay. Disappointed when it's over. Not that you're crying. Not that yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but look, if you, if you can get me crying by the end of a screenplay, you've done a good job yeah. right now. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a pretty – I think that's probably true for anyone. You know, I think uh, – what we 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 all I think I don't have any scientific evidence for this though I'm quite sure it exists but um, I think that the 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 human attraction to art is the human is the human attraction to having emotion elicited you know we 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 come to art as human beings uh, in an attempt to better comprehend and more deeply emotionally comprehend the world around us. To feel something. I, yeah, to feel something. And I think if you do that, you're, you're well on your way. It may not be perfect, and there may be work that can be done. But if you can elicit an emotional reaction with your storytelling, that is the truly hard part of becoming a good writer of any sort. You got revolutionary guards going door to door. These people die. They died badly. White House? Who wants the six of them out? What we like for this are bicycles. Deliver the six bikes, provide them with maps. Or you could just send in training wheels and meet them at the border with Gatorade. It's gonna take a miracle to get them out. Buddy man, what are we watching? I got an idea. They're a Canadian film crew for a science fiction movie. I fly into Tehran. We all fly out together as a film crew. I need you to help me make a fake movie. So you want to come to Hollywood and act like a big shot without actually doing anything? Yeah. You'll fit right in. You need a script? Argo. Science fantasy adventure. Moonscape. Mars. Desert. You need an exotic location to shoot. You need a producer. If I'm doing a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit. You don't have a better bad idea than this? This is the best bad idea we have, sir. And now that you're sort of on the other side, representing the, the writers from everywhere, um, do you see execs in a different light? Like they're you know, lazy, they should have caught that script. <laughs> no, I, I, 99 times out of 100, I, I understand the reasons why a, an executive may have not pulled the trigger on a piece of material, even when it ends up very high on the blacklist. Now, granted, most of that understanding is an understanding of their position professionally. Like, I'll give you an example. When I was working for uh, Leonardo's company, uh, I read the script for Lars and the Real Girl, and I thought it was exceptionally well done. I was actually emotionally moved by it, and rather significantly. And I remember going to tell my boss, I read this amazing script. Uh, we should just be aware of the writer. And he's like, oh, what's it about? And I was like, well, it's about a guy who buys a sex doll and treats it like his girlfriend in order to get over emotional trauma. And as I was explaining it, I, I, I remember backpedaling on my enthusiasm about recommending the script or the author. And that's not because I didn't think it was great, but I knew how absurd the description was sounding coming out of my mouth. And so I think... I have a great deal of understanding when I, when I think about the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, 
executives have jobs, they need to keep their jobs, and there's only so far you can go standing on tables and uh, sort of rattling pans in support of the script about, you know, the guy who buys a sex doll um, or the, uh, the script about uh, the stuttering prince who has to give a speech at a big climactic moment or the gay, uh, gay mathematician. These are not things that are historically thought of as box office gold in the industry. You know, it's priority as a capitalist industry that requires large amounts of capital to, to mount anything. Uh, you know, profit is always a is always a you know sincere focus. So, I, I think I, I remain highly sympathetic to the uh, the executive community, and, and and truthfully, you know, we've sort of created the blacklist um, to make their lives a little bit easier. One of the things that's come up now in the blacklist is the amazing podcast you do with interviews. It's called the Blacklist Table Read. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Blacklist Table Read is something we launched uh, last April. It's a podcast uh, that anyone on earth can listen to. You know, just Google the Blacklist Table Reads. You can find it. It's on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we take the best screenplays that we find on the website, and we get a bunch of actors around a, uh, a table in a radio studio. Lots of famous, I mean, big names you get. Uh, we've had Colin Hanks. Uh, it's probably the biggest name we've had on the podcast. Uh, Haley Joel Osment as well. Um, and we, uh, and Francis Fisher from Titanic. So, you know, we get them around a table and, and have them, per, you know, do a table read of the script. And then we, uh, the sort of brilliant uh, sound engineers at, at Wolf Pop, who's our creative partner on this, uh, do some post-production on the audio. They add sound effects and things like that. And then we um, and then we release that table read to the public. So every other week there's a new uh, screenplay. Um, and then in the intervening weeks, uh, you'll usually find an interview that I'll do with a working writer, often one that is uh, likely to be considered for this year's award season. So for example, um, we released a, a script called... Um, Angel's Flight, which is a uh, Chinatown-type film noir set in the Latino community in Los Angeles um, this past Thursday. And the previous week, uh, I interviewed Phyllis Naj, the screenwriter of Carol, and Emma Donahue, the screenwriter of Room. And these uh, table reads that you do, have they resulted um, in any produced scripts? Uh, not yet. We, um, I think that is likely in the very near future. Uh, we, only launched the, we only launched the podcast in April, and... Given the glacial pace that at which uh, films get made, it would have been staggering if <laughs> right. one completed. But but I'm optimistic. I mean, again, the hope for these is is both that we create you know several hours of great entertainment for people all over the world, but also that we raise the profile of these scripts and these writers to make their uh, to make those things more likely to get made. Um, and just now in December, the 2015 blacklist was released. You had some big names announcing Reese Witherspoon and Channing Tatum. They were on, on YouTube. That's where the uh, Michael Jackson chimp um, movie was one of those you announced. One of the things you really can see um, when you announce the, the latest, the yearly blacklist is some trends. What do you think are the trends based on your list that are coming in 2016? Well, I don't know if there are necessarily trends that you'll see in the theaters in 2016, but definitely the trends that we saw on, on this year's blacklist, uh, a lot of scripts about politics um, or the sort of outer edges of politics. You know, there's a, a sort of uh, a, a satirical Ronald Reagan biopic there's a uh, there's a script about gun control. Is this because it's an election year? Uh, you know, it's interesting because in in two thousand 
eight, there were a large number of uh, political scripts too. You know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. The other the sort of bizarre, uh, I don't even I don't even know what to call it, sort of quirk of the list is that we've seen in recent years multiple scripts about the same subject in the same year. So uh, this year there were two scripts about the making of The Godfather. Uh, two years ago there were two scripts about the making of the movie Jaws. Okay. Um, there were two scripts about uh, Mr. Rogers. I don't know that Mr. Rogers is a, uh, has any meaning outside of the United no, States. It's sort of a children's, children's TV yeah. host. Yeah. So I'd say that's another sort of bizarre quirk, and I, I have no way of accounting for that <laughs> other than sort of a Jungian notion of a collective unconscious tapping. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm really not sure. And anything else? No, I'd say those are probably the biggest ones. Um, you know, look, I, I get asked a lot, like, if I – was sort of uh, if I had no de- if I had no specific desire to write a specific script, what should I write to make it most likely that I end up on the blacklist? And the answer that I usually give is um, write a biopic about someone that a person between the ages of twenty five and forty five to fifty is likely to feel a great deal of nostalgia. Find a way to tell don't tell the sort of cradle to grave biopic. Like pick a moment in that person's life. Um, before which everything is obvious and after which everything is obvious and tell the story of sort of how they made the transition from that first period of their life to the second period of their life. And in an ideal world, um, that character is either a woman or their life is strongly influenced by a three-dimensional, strong female protagonist as well. And you're well on your way to, to likely having a good a, a good chance at it. Okay, that was very specific advice. <laughs> but I think it reflects it is very specific advice, but I think it reflects a certain kind of story that, that I, I think again sort of comes back to this idea of what it is why we come to art. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what, what I'm basically saying is most of your the people likely to read your script and be making a decision about it, both for getting made but also end up on the blacklist, are people between the ages of 25 and 45. If you write about something that they already have a strong emotional relationship to, and if you manage to recontextualize it and make them to make them look at it a different way, you're going to be fine. Right. Right. And lastly, um, on Thursday, I'm actually headed to London to interview Tom McCarthy about Spotlight. Um, Please tell him I said hi. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. What can you tell me about? Because Spotlight was on your list. What year was that? Yeah. I believe it was 2014. It might have been 2013. Um, I'm checking right now. Uh, 2013. 2013. So Spotlight, yeah, it was on the list. Uh, I think it was relatively low on the list because the script wasn't widely circulated, but you know, it's an exceptional drama. It's an exceptional drama in the tradition of those 1970s, uh, you know, all the president's men type uh, stories. And it's really, you know, it's an exceptional filmic and journalistic accomplishment from Tom and Josh Singer. Well, that was incredibly lucky for us that that was picked up on second viewing there on your list. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I don't want to take credit for any one movie getting made. I think it's sort of impossible for us to know what role we played, but I do hope that we, you know, shined a very bright spotlight on Spotlight and and, and had uh, and had some uh, catalyzing effect on it getting made or people paying attention to it. Thank you so much and good luck at the Oscars with your movies and, and with next year's list. I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I will be watching from my couch at home like I think most people probably <laughs> 
Uh, but that is certainly the most comfortable place to watch them. I agree. Well, not that I've been there, so I know the opposite, but I love watching them from my couch. You, you and me both. I'm, I'm guessing on both fronts. Thank you so much to Slate's June Thomas, and we will get back to you for the summer TCAs. And to Mr. Franklin Leonard, good luck at the Oscars with your movies and next year's Blacklist. We're looking forward to that. And thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture, or you can visit the website popcultureconfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by Rene Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.